This episode is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Story of America, The David Feldman Show, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, The Rachel Maddow Show, The David Pakman Show, and This Week in Blackness. And, you know, when I hear that conservatives want to be associated as the upholders of traditional values, all I can really think is, be careful what you wish for. In a free society such as ours, the police have to use force. Somebody has to step up and take on the bullies of this world. But we're going to use it intelligently, and we're not going to cross the line. We're going to focus on the bad guys every day. We're going after them. We're going to put them in jail. But not at the expense of our relationship with the people in the community who are law-abiding, good folks. They don't need to fear us. The criminals, they need to fear us. They need to fear being arrested and being held accountable. You know, after the Freedom Riders arrived here May 20th, 1961, they were attacked. Some of them had to go to the hospital. That night, they had a meeting at First Baptist Church right across the street from where we're sitting right now. An angry mob showed up outside that church and started breaking windows, cutting the phone lines, throwing fire bombs, and the people inside the church were utterly terrified. I said, well, Congressman Lewis, when you arrived here in 1961, you were doing the right thing. Practicing your lawful right to ride interstate transportation. Congressman Lewis was obeying the law, but the police department that day was not. We were not there to protect you and the other freedom riders from harm. And for that, I'm truly sorry. And when I said those words, he stood up and walked up to me and, and hugged me. And then as he, he turned, I said, I leaned over and whispered, if you'll just stay up here, there's something I want to give you. And I want you to know that you have friends in Montgomery Police Department that we're for you, we're with you. We want to respect the law and adhere to the law, which is what you were trying to do all along. This symbol of authority, which used to be a symbol of oppression, used to be a symbol of reconciliation. My experience, having lived in this city for 27 years, working for the police department, being in a leadership position in this organization for 17 of those 27 years, we would come up against a wall, a wall of mistrust between the community that we serve and the police department. And what I came to realize was this. The residents, the citizens of this city had been through so much at the hands of the police department where we, at one time, enforced unjust laws. In order to get onto a path where we're going to work together, there has to be some reconciliation. We have to have the help of the community. If you try to enforce the law in isolation, well, just the police department's going to do this, the citizens don't need to bother, you're going to fail. You have to have community support. And that was the bridge that I was trying to cross. The only person that knew prior to me doing it was Chief Brown, about five minutes before we walked into the church. There wasn't a whole lot of thinking going on. It was really, now how am I going to sit up here and wipe these tears? And I'm a police officer, and, they, and I'm supposed to represent strength, but it was so emotional um, to see that, you know, Representative Lewis was, he was emotional too. This organization that I love and that I've donated 
you know, 25 years of my life to was a part of that uh, segregation, was a part of that oppression. You know, to see it put in a different light, I became overwhelmed with emotion. I really did. So I was. And uh, what and did after, you say to him when you when you came back to you? I couldn't say nothing because I thought I was going to cry even more. <laughs> so I waited till it was all over with, and I told him he, he had done an excellent job. He, he, it was it was it was. Intend to dramatize the power of love, peace, and nonviolence and move toward reconciliation. And that's what the movement was all about. Yes. I'm very, very grateful. And I accepted the apology and I accepted this bad on behalf of so many people. The healing continued. The healing continued. And that's what the movement was all about. It, to heal, to become one. You change this city, you change this state, you change this country, and as Pastor Moore said, you've changed the world, and for that, we are truly grateful to you. I've received emails from all over the world, uh, from every continent, heartfelt, personal stories from people who experienced things during the civil rights movement. And I've probably received several hundred emails, and I've answered every one of them. I've stayed up late at night, and I've answered every single one of them myself. Some of them were very personal, and they took time to share with me an experience that they had during the Civil Rights Movement. A woman who was inside the church on that night when the crowd, the angry mob, surrounded the church, and she described how scared she was, and she thought she was going to die, and she thanked me. And I've told everybody this, we need to thank Congressman Lewis. We need to thank the, all the Freedom Riders. We need to thank everybody that was involved in the Civil Rights Movement that fought. You know, I'm not the hero here. They are. I was acknowledging that fact. get back to the hidden costs of being black in America. One of the hidden costs of being black is bail. My son's best, well, I don't want to talk about this. I will talk about my personal life. I can't talk about my children's personal life. But there is a, let's say, a 19-year-old black kid who I know in Los Angeles, a saint. I've known him since he was two years old, a perfect remains a perfect human being except for the fact that he's black and he was sitting in his car one day and two cops pulled guns on him now i've never had cops pull guns on me that alone sends a message to a 19 year old kid this really isn't your country or that would cause for me ptsd post-traumatic stress syndrome, having two cops pull guns on me, 
Long story short, six nights in jail, ended up dropping out of school for a while, and and it was expensive, and he just wanted it to go away, and it's gone away. And as a white Jew, I kept saying, give me the name of the cop, give me the name, and, and he was saying to me, you don't understand. Like, I understand, hey, but you, you were innocent, it was false arrest, you, you don't, and I've gotten kind of close to him since the arrest before, but now more so because I, I and I met one of his friends who's also black talks about walking out of a record store. He fit a certain profile three hours on a curb handcuffed cops telling him to shut up, not to make trouble. Referencing Trayvon Martin, getting uh, a ticket for jaywalking, missing his bus because a cop wanted to mess with him. If you're black in L.A., you're living in an apartheid state, right? It's what I call the black tax. You're going to pay the black tax. The black tax is the price the black people pay because of stereotypes about them. And certainly you've described a few. I've had to pay it recently. Just a couple years ago, I, my dogs are barking. I figure it's the mailman. So I'm going to go out there and intercept him. When I walk out the door, cross the threshold, there are three L.A. sheriffs standing out there. They see me, and you see, and David, you can, your audience can How many times? I'm gonna, yeah, I, I, I have a theory about you. You're kind. <laughs> You've got, how would you describe your... I have a big fro. You know, that some people call, depending on the interpretation of the uh, perceiver, can be seen as a halo or a thundercloud. You're asking for it, aren't you? Yes. You, you have, you're a graduate of Harvard, Berkeley Law School. You teach law at USC. Yeah. You are begging the cops yes. to racially profile you. My afro is my hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This is my hoodie. And I walk around wearing my ideas on my head, and it does cause them to be more scared of me. When I walked out of my house, crossed that threshold, when they saw me, I was in my jeans. I wasn't choked up like I am now, David. Uh -huh. I wasn't wearing the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the suit, you know, the black man's passport. Right. I didn't have the tie, etc. I just had my jeans and my sweats, and I walked out. And you're consciously asking for it on a daily basis. In other words, on a, on a daily basis, but not when I was walking out of my house. But let me. Let, let, I, I'm sorry to interrupt sure. you, but I just because I know if I were you, I know what I'm like. If I had your credentials, and I knew I could skate, and mess with the cops and get them into trouble and experience firsthand what black men go through, and then get these cops in trouble, I be a little afraid because these things can go awry but you are for all intents and purposes not on a daily basis but i can tell you you want to see you want to take the temperature of the la police absolutely how dangerous has it gotten for you since as a usc professor you've been at usc since 1995 you're a made man yeah you're pretty protected how Harry doesn't get well so to speak right because that's what happened yeah. when I grew this hair three years ago as I was writing my book the book I just finished that's when this fro came out before this fro <laughs> and this beard I looked a lot more like Obama 
than like Huey P. Newton. Okay. Okay. Once the hair came out, okay, all of a sudden I had these kinds of experiences like I'm just describing to you, where here I am, I have three sons in college, I'm walking out of my home, I got a gray beard, but the, the afro, all of the nappy hair that's, <laughs> that's spiking out over my head, defying gravity, is, and, and on top of that, I'm 6'5", it has made these officers pull their weapons, point them at my torso and head, and at that, and say, freeze, get your hands up. In response to which I was about to make the snarky observation that I can't do both of those at the same time. Right. But I realized that the one who had the gun pointed in my head, I looked at it, I saw that the hand was shaking. That fight or flight adrenaline response. And I realized that anything could happen here. We could have a mistake. Right. And that's when I dummied up. There was no snarky comment. Right. They put me in the back of the car in a caged back seat while they went through the house. They posted up a sniper across the street. A phalanx of officers went through the house. All that I was there, of course, were a couple dogs. My pet dogs were the only ones there. They said they'd heard that there there'd been a report of a shot, a gunshot in the neighborhood, and they came to investigate where that gunshot came from. When I walked out of the front door, I looked like the most reasonable suspect, you know, with, 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 with you know, this, this, this nappy sewing. And so, and that's when the when the weapons were drawn. So that's the black tax, you know. And it it does become dicey and precarious when you see that hand shaking. Yeah, was you, he white or black? Um, black actually. Okay. Black. That's the thing about stereotypes that we learn from st- looking at the empirical literature that it, it causes both blacks and whites to respond more negatively to someone who's black and ambiguous. You know. Right. But and the shaking hand of the black cop is. Of it being an issue of class, not race, in many cases. So you do get hassled by the cops. You saw the shaking hand... Did you have empathy with the cop, or were you completely outraged? By no, him? no. I, I have empathy with all profilers in this sense, David, that it is a normal human response to consider race along with gender along with size when you're assessing someone's dangerousness and the way we have our cognitive structures are built in in America right now with the cultural belief system we've all been swimming in so long associating black males with violence when we see black males we automatically get even racially liberal people on an unconscious level and then it, it can percolate up to a conscious level automatically get more nervous around blacks so it doesn't surprise me that the black officer like the white officer would respond on the basis of this ubiquitous stereotype of scary big black men, and I, I I did some feel some sympathy for him in the same way I felt some sympathy for, and this is going to surprise you, George Zimmerman mm. and the George Zimmermans of the world. And I know that that the problem isn't with with necessarily what a George Zimmerman does in a situation in which he's confronting somebody who looks scary to him. The problem is getting to that situation in the first place. Why did you profile him in the first place? The why did you stalk him? The yeah. cultural brainwashing. Why did you, why did you run up on him like that? Why, that was a, but once you're there, once you, if someone turns a corner, I've turned a corner on colleagues and, and they've actually screamed out loud, you know, with, with, with my new look, right? Because right. it just looks so surprising and a little scary to him. So what we have to, and you know what, I'm going to say one more radical thing, David, that, that, that might sound a little odd, but I, 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 I've been driven to this point. 
um, in thinking about these class issues as well, I think that the black tax, the fact that there's racial profiling, there's a silver lining in that. Even though in my book, Negrophobia, I criticize it roundly and I attack profiling and all that. So I know that whole argument. But the, the silver lining in the black tax and racial profiling is black middle class hates it. You know, um, Ellis Coase wrote a book about 15 years ago called Rage of a Privileged Class about all these middle class and upper class blacks who achieved all of this professionally. And yet they were being profiled. They were being discriminated against microaggressions and all kinds of ways. And they hated it. They, and my, my, my response now is the fact that you hate it is a good thing because as long as the poor black males who give rise to those stereotypes and give credence to those statistical generalizations are trapped in those ghettos and doing that disproportionate crime, then they're going to keep on profiling you and mistaking you for them middle class black man. As long as they don't look good, you don't look good, black bourgeoisie. So the only way you're going to get rid of profiling is to do something about that poverty. Lift them out of poverty so they're not committing disproportionate crimes because the crime rate between middle class blacks and whites is the same. So it's all the poor blacks that are doing it. Lift them out of poverty and you won't be profiled as much. That's the silver lining in the black tax. The problem is poverty more than it is prejudice. It, yes. In, the, in profiling cases, it, it, it's poverty that's driving it. There's a separate pr place for race, too. We can get into that, the cognitive unconscious. Right. And, but, but there's a special independent significance to class, and we have to acknowledge that. We have to recognize it, and we have to work on it. Well, a man with dirty dreads, he steps around the corner. He asked me for a dime, a nickel or a quarter. I don't have any chains, so I'm stepping along. But as I'm walking past, he sings to me a song. There's a hole in the bucket. Yeah, Glory to God. There's a Rick Riley, uh, ESPN uh, columnist, I can't believe he did this. So he kind of threw his father-in-law under the bus. Actually, not kind of. He totally well, did. I just you're Go going ahead. to read the story, but we don't really know. Either he threw his father-in-law under the bus, or his father-in-law threw Rick Riley under the bus. Mm -hmm. But okay. somebody's Open under, to some member of the Riley family is under the bus. Some, well, somebody's I, lying. Somebody's I certainly lean in one direction, but let's I find out. I do too. Out. I do too. Okay, so apparently. Uh, the controversy surrounding the name of the NFL team, the Washington, still called Redskins. Uh, so the father-in-law is a Native American. He's a bundle holder in the Blackfeet tribe. And Riley quoted the father-in-law. You're just going to breeze article. past that like people know what bundle holder is? Well, I don't know. No, nobody does. <laughs> he's, 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 he's a card carrying Native American. I mean, we know yeah, that. No, right. he's a holder of bundles. Oh, okay. yeah. oh, it's a holder of bundles. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. That's how you count sticks. You put them in bundles, and then you count them by tens. Oh, is that right? Okay. Broke it down very nicely. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Okay, so he says Chief that Thor. his na Native American father-in-law says, what's the big deal? It's silly. I don't even know why people are making a big deal out of this, blah, blah, blah. And use that to support his argument that, you know, it's indeed completely fine for this NFL team to be named after an entire group of people. Uh, the father-in-law did not take kindly to it at all and has now come out and said he doesn't know. He was misquoted, doesn't know why Riley was saying that. He does indeed think the name is racist, offensive, all this stuff. Says that his son-in-law is portraying him as an Uncle Tom, which is actually a term that we use in the black community to oh, right. indicate you throwing your own race under the bus again. Um, so I, I, I want to give the quotes because his yeah. father-in-law really took him apart. 
Right. He had mentioned in his article that you know that his father-in-law said, "Hey, this whole issue seems silly to me, etc." Right. And and so there's other problems in the country. So here's what his father-in-law says now about the article. Quote: Let me be clear, the racial slur "redskins" is not okay with me. It's never going to be okay with me. It's inappropriate, damaging, and racist. So when Riley was like, ah, it's totally fine with him. <laughs> it doesn't quite seem that he got the gist of what he was saying. <laughs> no. Then if that weren't enough, he continued to say, Redskins is part of the mentality from colonial times when our men, women, and children were hunted by soldiers and mercenaries who were paid for the scalps of our men, women, and children. How can anyone claim this is a proud tradition to come from? The labels, racism, and hatred of our people continue to experience are directly tied to those racial slurs. Yes, and then he see contradicts Riley on what Riley quoted, which was the silly part. Mm-hmm. He said he says he meant it's silly in this day and age that we're even talking about it. Right. Of course, the name should go. What we of course don't know is what their actual conversation was. What's your guess in the first place? What's your yeah, guess? What's this been? Yeah, what's this? Yeah, what's okay? A little Washington fan Riley's over here. Uh, story here. My guess is that it's something slightly in the middle. Mm. That Rick Riley wanted to start, like he said, this is silly. He may have said there are more important issues in this country going on right now, right? And then, but he didn't think that his son-in-law was then going to go public and make him, yes. in his words, seem like an Uncle Tom when he didn't really flush out his father-in-law's hmm. views. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think there's a definitive part of this story that makes Rick Riley uh, guilty, and that's his father-in-law saying, "Hey, listen." Uh, you got to clarify that because that's certainly not what I mean. Even if there was a misunderstanding, right, 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 right. He said, "Look, I need you to go and p- put a clarifying statement in the article, ex post facto. You know, it's already out there. It's not now." Rick Riley got in a lot of trouble over the article, so I know why he'd be reluctant to do it. But his father-in-law is telling him that is n- certainly, at the very least, not what I meant, let alone what I said, right? And I think it's deeply offensive, <sighs> deeply offensive. It's the exact opposite of what you said, right? Yes. And Rick Riley refused to put yeah, that yeah. in. Yeah. So then so that's over. Then, then, but see, he's supposed to be a, like in some way a journalist there, mm-hmm. right? No, and you're, you're and, it, and it's a blown opportunity. Yes. It's a blown opportunity to write a big important article. Like, wow, I don't know, we got confused. I thought that's what he meant. Mm-hmm. But he won. And then Rick Riley can say, I still stand by my same point that it's an okay name. And I guess in hindsight, finding one random source is saying it's okay and deciding that therefore for the entire Native American population right. it's okay, which is what the Redskins, the team, have been doing for years, trotting out the same nine mm-hmm. guys who mm-hmm. say it's okay. So Rick Riley's incredibly irresponsible. Uh, one guy says it's fine, so I guess it's good. It's all good. Uh, and, and, and that then, would have gone the, to actually, of course, ruining his whole article, right? But, but mm-hmm. that's probably why he didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Not just that he was wrong on the subject, but that he was wrong on the methodology. Totally. Like he was saying, ah, I don't, my father-in-law is fine with this, so I guess me, mm-hmm. it must be fine. So because then he's got to turn around and say, my father-in-law is not okay with it, so, oh, I guess we've got to change the name. Yeah. Right, because that's dumb. That's, that's a dumb way of or, deciding yeah. if or you should come change up with the name. Or reason not. why you should change the name, but the fact of the matter is, there are many quote the red guys the the Redskins give to you. There's a bunch of guys who don't think it, and it seems silly, and it's proud, and it's meant to be, write the article. But you're duty bound to do what your father-in-law requests. Ob- completely you, obligated yeah, to do see, what your father-in-law. See, that's the thing. Requests. Like, so you write. First of all, you write that article. You don't run it past your father-in-law. Hey, I'm going to quote you on that. Hey, I'm going to quote you this thing. It's the crux of my argument. Are you cool with it? I'm going to bring you into the spotlight. And hey, this is what I'm going to say. He doesn't do that. 
Yeah. Like, that's crazy. He is and that's not going to get like, it. Oh, he's like, even if his father-in-law did say exactly what he says he said and meant what he meant, you still can't do that? Because he's right. the guy who was, yes. right, he's the guy who gets to be offended or not, so he can change his mind. <laughs> yes. Rick Riley's not going to get any bubbles well, for you, Christmas you, you're this saying year. that, but he's exactly right. No, seriously, like, you're not the, he's not the privilege holder in this instance, yeah. you know, so you don't get to control how that comes out. I would be freaking out if somebody said anything like that that I had said against my community. Like, are yeah. you kidding me? Even, like you said, even if you alluded to maybe a little haphazard kind of attitude about it, yeah. you don't go this far. See, and, see, and that's, a great, that's yeah. a great analogy, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, this guy is not a random guy. We're kidding around about the bundle holder, but he's some yes. representative of the Blackfeet tribe. Absolutely. So it's yes. not like a thing you do lightly. But even if you weren't a representative of your people, let's say I'm going to write an article about something Ebony and I were saying in private. Right. And she said, I thought she said, oh, the N-word's not that big a deal. If I'm going to write that in an article, right, and I'm going to say, oh, Ebony K. Williams mm -hmm. said the N-word's not that I would call her. Yeah. I would call him and be like, hey, Ebony, that's what I thought you said. Are you sure are, that I you're have cool an with me saying that? I have to clarify, right. whoa, 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 yes. right. I'm in in this particular context. Yeah, yeah right. no, I think this is crazy. And I will say also, too, when I was reading this whole thing, I'm like, I wonder what the heck the wife feels like in this. Like, you got your husband uh, and your dad. Oh, yeah. You know, what the She hell? must be on the warpath. That's the <laughs> most awkward <laughs> dinner ever, right? I would kill my husband if he did something like this to my dad. Sometimes in my tears I drown. But I never let it get me down So when negativity surrounds I know It's also Columbus Day, a perfect day to consider changing the name of the Washington Redskins. Uh, the NBC sports commentator, Bob Costas, this is, he's one of the most respected commentators in America. Right? Bob Costas has been around a long time. Gave his take on this growing controversy over the, the name, the team name, the Washington Redskins. He started off by talking about the differences between the term Redskins and other ways that we refer to Native Americans like, you know, warriors or chiefs or braves. And he said that objections to names like braves, chiefs, warriors, and the like strike many of us as political correctness to run amok. These nicknames honor rather than demean. Then he went on to say, but think for a moment about the term redskins and how it truly differs from all the others. Ask yourself what the equivalent would be if it was directed toward African Americans or Hispanics or Asians or members of any other ethnic group. These comments by Bob Costas come just a couple of days after President Obama uh, himself weighed in on the issue. When he was talking with the Associated Press, President Obama said to the, uh, you know, to the AP reporter, I don't know whether our attachment to a particular name should override the real legitimate concerns that people have about these things. He also said that he would, quote, think about changing, end quote, the name, considering that it offends, quote, a sizable group of people, end quote. 
I mean, the fact of the matter is, while Native Americans may have referred to themselves as braves or chiefs or warriors, they've never once referred to themselves as redskins. It's a derogatory and racist term that began probably with the discovery of the Americas. In 1492, Columbus was on this search for gold around the world. And he had landed on this island, Hispaniola, which today is the, it's, it's, you know, half the island's Haiti and half of it's the Dominican Republic. And while he didn't find much gold there, he did find something that he thought was as good as gold. And that was people. And it was those indigenous people, those redskins, that Columbus thought would make great slaves. When he, you know, when he came across these people, these indigenous people of Hispaniola, the the redskins, he wrote to the Spanish monarch about them, saying, "They are well built, with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know." And, and do not know them, arms. For I showed them a sword, they took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron, their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Here there are so many of these slaves, although they are living things, they are as good as gold. Now, you know, over the years, we've forgotten about the horrors of what Columbus did, and instead we've got this warm and fuzzy story of this bold explorer, right? The reality is quite different. Columbus actually raped, pillaged, enslaved, and slaughtered people just to get rich. Andrew, I hope you're catching this rewrite. One of Columbus's crewmen, Miguel Cueno, or Cuneo, excuse me, described the scene when Columbus arrived in Hispaniola for a or Hispaniola for a second time. When their boats pulled up, thousands of these Indians, the Tianos, came out to greet the ships. And Cueno wrote, quote, when our caravels were to leave for Spain, we gathered 1,000 others. They're heading back to Spain, right? They're heading back to Europe. We gathered 1,600 male and female persons of those Indians. For those who remained, we let it be known to the Spaniards uh, who remained in the vicinity that anyone who wanted to take some of them could do so to the amount desired, which was done. Cuneo went on to write that he took his own sex slave, a beautiful teenage girl, who in his own words, quote, resisted with all her strength, end quote, leaving him with no choice but to, quote, thrash her mercilessly and rape her, end quote. This is from his own diaries. Columbus eventually started up a global child sex slave business, selling Indians all over the world. He bragged about it in a letter to a friend of 1500. He said, a hundred Castellanos, a Spanish coin, is a Spanish coin, are as easily obtained for a woman as for a farm, and it is very general, and there are plenty of dealers who go about looking for girls. Those from nine to ten years old are now in demand. End of quote from Christopher Columbus. Eventually, under Columbus's rule, life for the Taino people on Hispaniola became so bad that they resorted to mass suicide. 
25 years after Columbus had arrived in, on that island, the Spanish missionary Pedro Cordoba wrote, quote, As a result of the suffering and hard labor they endured, the Indians chose and have chosen suicide. Occasionally, a hundred have committed mass suicide. The women, exhausted by labor, have shunned conception and childbirth. <coughs> Excuse me. Many, when pregnant, have taken something to abort and have aborted. <coughs> Pardon me. Others have, after delivery, have killed their children with their own hands so as not to leave them in such oppressive slavery. End of quote. Eventually, Columbus simply resorted to wiping out the Taino altogether. Prior to his arrival, some scholars put the population of uh, Haiti, Hispaniola, at, which is now at 16 million, at around 1.5 to 3 million people. By 1496, it was down to 1.1 million, according to a census done by Bartholomew Columbus, Columbus's brother. In 1516, the indigenous population was 12,000, and by 1542, fewer than 200 natives were alive. By 1555, every single one was dead. Knowing what we know now about Columbus's real actions and intentions, do we really want to continue to use this derogatory term, redskins, that he probably used and certainly came out of his efforts, that he used to refer to the people that he raped, pillaged, slaughtered, and enslaved? As Costas pointed out, we don't call sports teams mascots the N-word. Why is it, why is it, or, 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 you know, black skins or yellow skins or, or white skins for, the ma- for that matter? Why is it okay to call them red skins? All my thoughts and particularly my prayers have not forgotten the indigenous for the Western man's been working so hard against us. With his Western medicine and his land management and his fancies, uh or the way he protects and the way he preserves and never but way he neglects the people who came first, you know, the same ones that he massacred. Uh-huh. And it all starts to make sense. Where we're going, where we're at, and where we've been. Uh-huh. It all starts to make sense. Their vultures of culture and they're picking on all my friends, uh-huh. It all starts to make sense, yeah. It has been a hard week for the kickoff of the Republican Party's outreach efforts to African Americans in the state of North Carolina. The Republican Party's presidential candidate may have won North Carolina overall in 2012, but that was no thanks to the black vote. African Americans in North Carolina voted 96% for President Obama. That was up from the 95% of black voters who supported him in the previous election. More than one in five residents of North Carolina is African American. But black voters in North Carolina have really not seen much to appeal to them from the Republican Party. And this was a really unfortunate week to pick for Republicans to try to change black voters' minds. This was the week that the Republican governor of the state went to court to defend the Republicans' new law restricting voting rights in the state, a law that had been called the worst voter suppression law passed anywhere in the country since the Voting Rights Act of 1965 banned things like literacy tests and poll taxes. So Republicans went to court to defend those laws the same day they opened up their black outreach office in North Carolina. Two days later, The Daily Show on Comedy Central talked to a local North Carolina Republican official about that law and what it's for. 
The bottom line is the law is not racist. Of course the law is not racist. And you are not racist. Well, I've been called a bigot before. Let me tell you something. You don't look like me, but I, I think I've treated you the same as I would anybody else. Right. Matter of fact, one of my best friends is black. So one of your best friends one of my best friends is black. Yes. And there's more. When I was a young man, you didn't call a black a black. You called him a Negro. Uh, I had a picture one time of Obama sitting on a stump as a witch doctor. And I posted that on Facebook. I was making fun of my white half of Obama, not the black half. And now you have a black person using the term this, that, and it's okay for them to do it. You know that we can hear you, right? Yeah. Okay, you know that. You, you, you know that we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, all right. Then I found out the real reason for the law. The law is going to kick the Democrats in the butt. Wow. An executive GOP committee member just admitted that this law isn't designed to hurt black people. It's designed to hurt Democrats. If it hurts a bunch of college kids that's too lazy to get up off their bohunkers and, and go get a photo ID, so be it. Right, right. If it hurts the whites, so be it. If it hurts a bunch of lazy blacks that wants the government to give them everything, so be it. And it just so happens that a lot of those people vote Democrat. Gee. And this is the week the North Carolina Republican Party is kicking off their outreach to black voters. Mr. Yelton resigned from the North Carolina Republican Party leadership job that he has yesterday after the Daily Show segment ran and everybody got upset with what he said. But he told a reporter from The Wrap today that he stands by everything he said in the interview. He said local Republicans have long complained that they can't get enough media coverage and he has finally provided some. Then he started using the N-word again to the reporter, telling the paper when an N-word can use the word n-word he said it again uh, and it not be considered racist that's the utmost racism in the world mr yelton has also been enjoying time today on north carolina local radio here he is on Asheville's wwnc no i don't take back anything that i said would i do it again yes i would but what has happened is through this appearance on this show has confirmed some things for me Number one is confirmed that the Democrat Party can't take the truth. When I said it's going to kick the Democrats in the butt, this law about having the voter ID, I meant it. To heck with it. I don't want to be part of a group that is that mealy-mouthed and that gutless. So the North Carolina Republican Party's efforts this week to woo black voters away from the Democratic Party uh, not turning out to be great timing already. Then today we got this. I uh, noticed on Facebook recently that there was uh, somebody had posted something with a picture of Barack Obama and across it said traitor. And, you know, I, you know, I don't always agree with the guy. I certainly didn't vote for him, but i got to defend him on this one. Uh, I just don't think it's right at all to call Barack Obama a traitor. I, you know, there's a lot of things he's done wrong. But he's not a traitor, at least not as far as I can tell, because I've not come across any evidence yet that he has done one thing to harm Kenya. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolina Republican State Legislator uh, Larry Pittman speaking at a town hall in North Carolina this week. 
So uh, the worst voting law since Jim Crow, the lazy black people N-word guy hits The Daily Show and then tours the state media, making himself a star. The president is secretly African. Uh, anything else, North Carolina Republican Party? Is there anything else you want to do this week to woo black voters, to kick off your outreach efforts to the black community? Got anything else up your sleeve? Today, Republican North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory will honor the late Jesse Helms. Ah, right, because why not? If North Carolina Republicans are really going all out this week to try to make it seem like they're super welcoming the black people, why not, doing, why not do an event honoring this guy? You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. When Jesse Helms was in the Senate uh, in 1993, he stepped into the Senate member's elevator uh, along with the first African-American woman to ever be elected to the U.S. Senate, Carol Mosley Braun. She was the only black member of the Senate at that time. Senator Helms saw her standing in the elevator alongside Utah Senator Orrin Hatch. He walked up to Senator Mosley Braun in the elevator and started to sing, I wish I was in the land of cotton. Quote, and he looked at Senator Hatch and said, I'm going to make her cry. I'm going to sing Dixie until she cries. When Jesse Helms retired from the United States Senate, David Broder at the Washington Post wrote that he was, quote, the last prominent, unabashed, white racist politician in this country. What is unique about Helms is his willingness to pick at the scab of the great wound of American history, the legacy of slavery and segregation, and to inflame racial resentment against African Americans. When Jesse Helms finally died in 2008, his L.A. Times obituary noted that unlike other symbols of segregation like Alabama's Governor George Wallace or South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond, who eventually recanted their opposition to racial integration, Jesse Helms held firm on that until his death. And so that's who North Carolina Republican Governor Pat McCrory is honoring tonight to put the capstone on the North Carolina Republican Party's efforts this week to win over the African-American vote. Anybody else besides me afraid to see what they're going to try next week? The majority of conservatives want a white male Congress. Some people might not be surprised by this, but we actually have polling data to support it now. Addicting Info has a write-up about this. We've been talking for a while about the demographic problems of the Republican Party because of increased Hispanic uh, voting, uh, increased Hispanic population and the changing demographics of many individual states. The, f the fact that Republicans don't do well with minority groups is a problem. Compounding that is the fact that Republicans are not doing well with women voters either, meaning that they're really appealing to white men. And it turns out that that's actually who they want more of in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. 
The new poll from ABC Fusion says only 5% of conservative Republicans think that more minorities in Congress would be a good thing. Apparently, most feel that it would be bad to have a diverse Congress. And if you look further, they, they only, it says only 26% of conservatives and 23% of Republicans support electing more women to the House and Senate. This is one of those things that Republicans will come back at me and they'll say, David, are you advocating simply having more and more and more minorities and more and more women? Will you ever be happy? And it's really not about that. We can actually say to ourselves that there is roughly an idea of the distribution that should exist. Women make up slightly more than 50% of this country. So would it not stand to reason that women would probably make up slightly more than 50% of the Senate and slightly more than 50% of the House? Further, wouldn't it make sense that we would have racial distribution among the House and Senate that also more or less matches the constituency of, of the entire country. Maybe that's a crazy thing to think of, Lewis. Maybe I'm way off on that. It seems logically that that would be the best way to represent the country. But uh, at the same time, personally, I just want the most qualified and intelligent people in those positions. So whatever happens, happens. Right. But, but uh, see, that's the that's where we get. This is a tough conversation because then you go back and you say we shouldn't be trying to fill quotas. We should just have the best people and the people who want to serve. That is not inaccurate, right? What Lewis is saying is not inaccurate, but it opens the door to Republicans saying, we can't control that the best people are white men. They just happen to be right now. We're not racist. It's not that we're misogynistic. It's just the best people seem to be the white men. And it's, it's very tough to really have a conversation without, number one, seeming like you're trying to fill quotas, but number two, implicitly agreeing that, hey, just keep filling it up with white men. Yeah, it's tough, but if Republicans want to win elections, they're, they're going to need more than just white men in office. That's the, that's the issue, which is the demographics are just not favorable right now, and that's a story we've been covering and we will continue to cover. Tea Party, but it's deeply troubled about the expansion of government, about immigration, about secularism, about the mainstream of what used to be the avant-garde. People with conventional views must repress a gag reflex. Breathe, Elon. Breathe. That's breathe. the sound of that. That's the gag reflex. Breathe, breathe. When considering the mayor-elect of New York, a white man married to a black woman. Oh, gross. With two biracial children. Should Ew. I mention that Bill de Blasio's wife, Shirley McRae, used to be a lesbian. Oh, my God. This family represents the cultural changes that have enveloped par uh, parts, but not all, of America. Two cultural conservatives, this doesn't look like their country at all. <laughs> <laughs> not my country at all. Okay, first of all, 
<laughs> I need I need Richard Cohen to put the the keyboard down. Just step away. I need him to step away. Number two, are you all right, Elon? Do you need a glass of water? There's a lot of gagging happening back there. Well, no, I was thinking about my interracial marriage. That's so gross. It's so gross. I know my yours gross. is even grosser. I we I know we have one of those interracial children. Oh, gag me with a spoon. Aaron used to date uh, used to be dating this white chick. Oh God. I know. I, I told Aaron to his face that if he didn't break up with her, I was gonna punch him in the face. Ugh. You know what though? It's but disgusting. I mean, having that whole feeling, mm. that gag reflex, that visceral feeling of illness, <laughs> feeling nauseous, feeling like you just want to just expel everything in your body. I mean, that's not racist. When you're, when that's in response to seeing an interracial couple, that's not racist at all. That's just, that's, you know, just, uh, troubled. Just deeply troubled. It's funny that you mention this because, uh, I may have, uh, I may have, I may have weighed in on this. Uh oh. That's right. I actually, with our schedule, I was actually able to stop. Tell everyone, leave me alone. I'm writing, I'm, I'm rage writing. That's when Dasha came in. That's yeah, what she said. That's, in he, was, he was in his rage closet. I was in my rage closet. I was writing uh, at, at the fastest speed of light uh, while trying to still be uh, reasonable, which uh, which Amani says I've been too reasonable. But I mean, it's my it's my brand. What am I going to do? Uh, I I I responded to this <laughs> on the route. You should go check that out. Uh, see, all Cohen did was write a completely disconnected paragraph from the rest of his article, explaining that it's not racist if you find interracial marriage ma- gag-inducing. That this particular segment of the GOP is simply troubled because parts of America don't look the way they remembered it. That's not racist. That's just a fact of life, right? Anybody? What Cohen doesn't seem to realize is that just because you're writing something that's even true doesn't make it not racist. Yeah. And it definitely doesn't make it right as a black man. And I wrote uh, it like a what? A, a black man in an interracial relationship. I can justify that it's not just portions of the Republican Party that have issues with interracial relationships. The most vocal com- uh, commentary in opposition to my marriage was, has been from supposed liberals. Real talk. And as backwards, as, as backwards as Cohen's commentary is, seriously, understanding the guy who killed the unarmed teenager, he's not lying. His commentary is problematic and completely out of touch, but he hasn't lied. He does understand why Zimmerman was suspicious of Trayvon. Hell, I had black people argue with me about wearing a hoodie. He does blame twerking, a culturally black activity on the breakdown of moral decency. And yes, I've had black people argue that twerking is problematic. Ratchet. Why white people judge us? They do that. Cohen is making many of us uncomfortable and angry, but it's not because he's lying. The fact is, Richard Cohen's commentary is a mirror in which many of us in America are uncomfortable seeing our own reflection in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wasn't amused this morning, but at the same time, I was, I, was, I was annoyed by the article. I was annoyed by Cohen, but I was almost more, I was, I was equally annoyed at the response to it because the response became muddled. And I talk about this on the show all the time. When I can agree with you and think you're wrong. Yeah. When people were saying stuff about this, and I'm like, uh, he wrote it. What he wrote was racist. What he wrote was racist. No, no. What he wrote wasn't quite racist. What he wrote was incredibly problematic. And he was defending racism. So you can make the argument that he was upholding racism. <laughs> yes. He's allowing people to stand on his shoulders and say they're not racist. See, Robert Cohen, uh, Richard Cohen says I'm not racist. But what he said, what he was actually saying was about what the Tea Party thinks. And I actually believe that in parts of the country, because I know folks actually do, it is gag-inducing. But to say it's not racist, that's where the hook is. He said this thought process isn't racist. 
Not that he's racist. He said this isn't racist. Right. And that is where you have to go throw things through glass because it is racist. And when you go around defending stuff like this, you become part of the problem, which is why Cohen should be in the crosshairs of everybody. But at the same time, what do you, when you yell about this, do you know why you're yelling? Do you know the framing? Did you just see interracial gag uh, uh, inducing and just go running screaming into the night, which a lot of folks did? Or did you actually read the whole thing and go, oh, okay, well, actually, the problemat- the most problematic thing here is that he's co-signing this. He's co-signing. He, he, he's not saying it's right. He's saying it's not racist. It's just a problem. He's dressing up racism in another outfit that's more palatable to many. Yeah. You're yeah. being troublesome. <clears throat> You're just being problematic. It's not racist, but it's like the Dixiecrats, which were incredibly racist. Yeah. And I mean, and that's the thing is that he, then the previous paragraph, he talks about how the, the Dixiecrats of old are the Republicans of new. And it's, and it was Strom Thurmond, for example, you know, in 1948, like the objective was not to win, um, but to retain institutional legal racism. They saw a way of life under attack and they feared its loss. But then he goes on to say, but it's today's GOP, it's GOP is like a, like a, like a soft and squishy version of that they're not racist they're just troubled they're just they're just annoyed they're just they just have a slightly problematic way of seeing things that's based in racism but it's not racist now reported from talking points memo approximately 12 minutes ago Washington Post columnist Richard Cohen defended his column centered on the Tea Party on Tuesday in which he claimed that those with conventional views must repress a gag reflex when they're encountered by racial couples such as the newly elected New York City mayor Bill de Blasio and his wife, Sherlane McRae. I didn't write one line. I wrote a column, he told the Huffington Post in an interview. The column is about the Tea Party extremism, and I was not expressing my views. I was expressing the views of what I think some people in the Tea Party held. The yeah. word racist is truly hurtful, he added. It's not who I am. It's not who I ever was. It's just not fair. It's just not right. Oh, my God, Richard Cohen. This, is he trolling this week in blackness? Cohen explained that he didn't think the entire Tea Party held such views. I don't think everybody in the Tea Party is like this because I know there are blacks in the Tea Party, which, what? He uh, said there, he, he said, so they're not all racist. Black people can be racist. Black people black can black people. Unless I'm going to start do- doing mind reading about why those black people are there. Sir. Fred Hyatt, the Washington Post editorial page editor, also defended the column Tuesday, but said that he could have edited, edited it more carefully. <laughs> Um, that's not really, you know, I did my job, but I didn't do it very well. I mean, I can understand, like, I don't, I think it's fine, but I don't think it's that much of a problem. I mean, I think it's fine, but could I, maybe, could I have made it less upholding of, uh, uh, the racist institution of racism? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe I could, maybe I could do that, or, I mean, I'll just see him. Oh, we'll just, I'm, uh, bring some, some, uh, some links in. Get some hits. Yeah. Advertisers, advertisers well, here's, pay. Here's the thing. I, I, again, I wanted to be clear because I, 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 when I wrote my article, I just knew that people were going to be like, Elon's defending. No, what? Richard come Cohen. on. If anybody is, is, is not defending I'm Richard Cohen, I'm not come amused on, by him in any shape uh, or fashion. Uh, no. My, 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 and by the way, shout out to, uh, 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 Empty Circle on Twitter who, who forwarded us over, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the link to Town Components memo in his, uh, commentary. Here's the thing. I am not defending Richard Cohen as much as I'm 
condemning America. (laughs) And I think people don't understand the difference between the two. I don't think Richard Cohen's right. I think Richard Cohen is is putting out some ignorant ass shit. I believe Richard Cohen is also representing a space that is actually correct. And uh in there in, in in that thought process, yes, people do believe what Richard Cohen is saying. I agree with that. I know liberals who agree what Richard Cohen's saying. Uh and so that's not that's not the the shocking part. The sh- the part that is a problem is that he's defending racism by saying it's not racist. Yeah. And also, he went out of his way to make this point. He was making an argument about Christie and the Tea Party and Republicans and extremism, which he could have easily done without throwing in some random, but he also, right now, he's like a freshman year African American studies uh, student. Word. You know when you know when you first get to African American studies in college and you're super excited, so you just start bringing up black stuff all the time for no reason. Yep. You're just like you just like randomly. Someone's like, "Man, I would love some ice cream." Black people made ice cream for the white man back in 1872, and it was racism. <laughs> and you're just talking to me like, "Okay, I, I, yes, lots of racism happened, but I, I think you're misunderstanding." No, I'm not misunderstanding. Maybe you misunderstand the thing. Maybe you know I'm not. Like, I'm off point. I'm off ice cream. I won't even eat vanilla ice cream. I don't care if it's chocolate. <laughs> first year, first year African American, Af- 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 Africana studies kid is like, they don't quite, they get it. They know, they know things are bad. And so they get mad. And the thing is that like, he's trying to make points, but he's doing it so horrendously. Like if he wanted to make a point about race, uh, uh, about uh, a streak of racism within the party, he could have made it without co- co-signing. <laughs> I mean, without, I, without defending an, a, a racist idea as not being racist, just simply troublesome, so that he can maintain. So he because he literally says in this thing, ra- uh, the term racist is very hurtful. That's why he didn't use it. Because like the, uh, Melissa Harris Perry made this point before, Dasha, that in America, the term racist has become one of the worst things you can say about someone. It is, it is, it is, it is bad. It is terrible. Which is why white folks are trying to take it back. <laughs> They're trying to take back the power from racism, i.e. Sarah Palin getting on and go, listen, this isn't racist. This, uh, they're going to say it, but let them talk. It's not racist. Like, well, ma'am, you probably, if you have to give all that, yeah. that lead up to it, it's probably a little bit racist. Yeah, it's, I mean, we've, we've already established this rule that if you start anything with this isn't racist, but yeah, what you're about to say is racist. Yeah, it's not, you, you can't qualify something with it's not racist. I don't, you know, I don't think that it works that way. Hi, Jay. This is Kate in Toronto. And I just wanted to call to thank you for the show that went out on, uh, I think it was November 5th, um, talking about feminism and climate change. Um, I think a way that we can get a lot more people on board with feminism is to think about this concept called intersectionality, which is the idea that there are many forces that oppress people and working towards liberating people from the oppression based on gender um, works in many 
different ways with a lot of other ways people are oppressed. So um, a lot of the economic ways that climate change oppresses people, making resources more scarce. So I wanted to thank you for highlighting that because I really think that that is the next challenge of spreading feminism to a, a wider audience who might be more resistant to it. I also wanted to address one of your callers who, uh, it was the first voicemail on that show, um, who said that we should be, we should hold back from labeling people as racist. Um, I'm very torn about that because I do agree with you that labels do tend to shut down conversations, particularly when they're applied to people. Um, but I think we need to be a lot less reluctant to name the acts that those people perform or engage in or the language that certain people express as racist. I think we need to be more upfront in labeling acts and language as racist. Um, I think there's been a lot of reluctance to do that and it's really been to the detriment. Um, it's prevented a lot of honest conversations. An example of that would be um, Ted Cruz's father recently telling in a speech, Obama to go back to Kenya and the entire birtherism movement. Um, very few mainstream media sources have openly called that what it is, which is racist. And I think that that's really obstructing our dialogue about some of the nefarious forces in our society. So while I would agree that we should probably refrain from calling people racist, I think we need to be more upfront about calling acts and language racist when that's clear it's what they are. And keep in mind, I'm a white person and I think it's so crazy to me that white people can be so much more offended about potentially being called racist than they are about racism itself. Um, being called a racist, obviously, as I said, I'm white. I, can't put myself into a person of color's shoes, but I, I can promise <laughs> being called a racist is probably not as bad <laughs> as actually experiencing racial discrimination, um, whether it's overt or it's, you know, more subtle than that. Um, if your problem with race relations are the, is the fact that as a white person you might be called a racist, maybe you need to re-examine what's really happening in the world. and the problems of people who are actually being discriminated against because of their race. Thank you so much for the show, and keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening and donating. Have a great one. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver. And uh, I'd just like to clarify something about when I was saying the voting with your dollars in relation to GMO. In particular with the GMO foods, I think the main point that I was trying to make is we have objections that aren't necessarily related to, to purely the fact that these are modified genetically. The objections are because the seeds are patented the, uh, and that costs farmers their freedom and, and livelihoods. The, the objections are that some of them may be dangerous, even though maybe some of them are not. The objections are that they're going to use too many pesticides, that they're going to have massive, environmentally destructive monoculture farms. What we should do, instead of making dubious claims required on the labels for these, which will 
which will definitely, especially in the case where the claims are legitimately dubious, they will be struck down in court. So we're going to do an initiative to get a label on the food. So the label might not be true, but we're going to talk about it. And that will bring up all these other topics. Why not do the initiative to say you can't have food that's soaked in pesticides? Why not do one that said you can't have seed patents uh, or, or you can't have seeds that don't germinate? Uh, they're not legal in, in a state or in a, you know, in a locality or whatever where you're doing this initiative. Rather than saying we're going to say icky things in general about GMOs, say we're going to attack the direct thing. So I don't, you know, I don't think we will, you know, I, the reason I don't shop at Walmart and the reason why I, I want to have action against them isn't to make, you know, ridiculous claims about them and then hope some of them stick. There's, there's legitimate things to protest about Walmart. There's legitimate things about their business model that should be made illegal to the point where I think a free American should be able to go to any store in their community and not have to worry that there was a child exploited in the process, that there was a farmer that had to commit suicide in the process. And so you attack the root and not the branch in this case. So I just wanted to clarify that. Thank you. Have a nice day. Appreciate the show. Hey, Jack. Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, I just wanted to call and say thanks to Will from Tallahassee and Dave from Olympia for uh, responding to the question that I asked. Um, I really appreciated the insights Dave had, like not bringing up facts. This is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Number one is not to argue. You should instead ask questions and not even having the argument, listening and asking questions, which uh, seemed logical when he said them, but for some reason they seem so antithetical to what I want to do. I think because I want to be right and there's ego going on and and of course I think I'm on the right side of things all the time. So it was really nice just to, to hear those, those responses and then how you responded to Will today about the, the consistency and how you view consistency and that, that really helped me out too. So I just wanted to say thanks and great episode on the, um, on the healthcare um, fiasco <laughs> that's going on. Uh, I think it did a great job of not shying away from the problems but also highlighting the successes or the wealth of successes at this point. So anyway, dude, talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first, since today's episode was all about racism and related issues, I wanted to touch on that voicemail, uh, trying to make the distinction between uh, labeling people and labeling actions as as racist or maybe thoughts as racist. And I, if memory serves, the the voicemail that she's referring to, you know, from you know a few episodes back, I, I think that that caller was more or less on the same page. You know, the let's be careful about labeling people, but let's be adamant about labeling actions. It's important to call those sorts of things out, and I'm, I totally agree. And you know, in the not too distant past, I, this conversation had come up before, and I basically approach the the subject from 180 degrees from the other angle and and talked about how you know really all of us 
have these sort of inherent senses of, of racism inside of us. Like just based on the society we grow up in, we marinate in this racist soup as we grow up. So to imagine that you could get to the age of reason, much less anywhere beyond that, without having internalized some uh, you know degree of racist thinking is, is sort of absurd. And so the important thing is not to have this be about, you know, shame and labeling and, you know, calling people racist and sort of, you know, in, in a way that it essentially, uh, essentially dismisses them from the conversation, but just recognizes the reality of it, uh, you know, recognizes the reality of racist actions and, and thoughts, labeling them as such, uh, you know, naming them, shaming them, the thoughts, the actions, and then moving forward so that people can sort of grow out of that would be the hope anyways. Uh, secondly today, Chris, uh, Chris, uh, from Colorado Springs, you know, his whole take on, uh, you know, talking to conservatives and, and trying to debate them. It's reminding me of, of another Chris, uh, one of the oldest listeners to the show, although I haven't heard from him in a while, so I don't, I don't know, uh, what he's up to these days, but Chris, the carpenter, uh, has been listening since almost day one. Uh, last time I talked to him, he had some interesting stories that that fit right in with this discussion, and and basically he uh, you know won't it won't surprise you to learn that he's a carpenter, and so some of his coworkers are not the most you know intellectually stimulating people uh, to have conversations with, and so he told me that he gets lots of practice debating conservatives who don't really know a lot of the facts, and so you know the the one example he gave that that I can still remember was, you know, guys would be complaining to him about how Obama raised their taxes. And instead of, you know, at, he knew quite well that he had not done that. And this person he was talking to had definitely not had their taxes go up. Um, but rather than saying that and correcting them, he would just say, oh, man, that sucks. Uh, how much? And the answer would inevitably be, well, oh, I, I don't know, actually. I, I don't know. And he said, oh, you mean... So you got your taxes raised and you're really pissed off about it, but you're not sure how much, like you haven't checked. I mean, boy, I would sure, uh, you know, check on that because if I, if my man and my taxes were going up, I would know down to the penny, uh, you know, exactly how angry I should be about it and then sort of send the person off to go do their research and discover for themselves. Uh, it turns out my taxes didn't go up after all. And it's just... It, it's all it's all in how you look at it, you know. Chris from Colorado Springs wants to have that uh, snarky know-it-all attitude uh, that is so fun to have, um, but that approach might not be the most effective. Uh, however, I think there is a way to kind of use the Socratic method, uh, you know, just ask questions, draw draw the person into the conversation, and you can still have some fun with it. So, uh, hopefully, that's helpful helpful tidbit for everyone today uh, but that is going to be it for today thanks everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations that is absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it leaving glowing reviews on itunes and stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of left stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on facebook and twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all 
all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And Stories and forget who it is with